Hello, dear friends. I'm Jordan Rich, Boston area podcaster and broadcaster and good friend of Diane Godfrey. This podcast is catching fire all over the world. True crime fans, we welcome you. Today, a guest we've had in the past, he's terrific. His name is Joe Sharkey, top flight journalist and author. We talked with him in the past about the Charles Stewart murder case in Boston. Today, it's Above Suspicion. A true story of a young hotshot FBI agent who takes an assignment in eastern Kentucky and things go terribly wrong. This is a riveting case and Diane and I are very excited about having Joe back. So Diane, as always, court's in session. The floor is yours. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Diane. This is All Rise with Diane Godfrey. And uh, we have a special guest today. He is actually the same guest we had back in August of 2021. He was so good and so delightful that I hooked on to another book that he wrote. His name is Joe Sharkey. He's a columnist, a former columnist for the New York Times, and he writes these terrific books. Today we're going to focus on the book entitled Above Suspicion. It's a true story of FBI agent Mark Putnam. And I'm Joe, I got the book. I read it within 24 hours. It was another page turner. What can I say? You keep wow. turning them out. I love them. Huh. It's, the way been a while. it's just so easy it's so easy to read and you just keep you don't want to put it down oh that's so, that's nice to hear yeah a lot I'd of like, reporting though you know it was a heavy duty reporting job well that was one of my first questions yeah. how in the world were you privy you had up close and personal information and from what i understand you spoke to the murderer mark putnam on many occasions and his wife kathy how the heck did that come to be well first i met kathy um back uh, when she was she was desperate this is after mark had had pleaded uh, guilty and gone to prison and she was um in new york and I, I i sort of ran into her and she wanted desperately to hold the fbi account account to account for what she saw as egregious misbehavior. Now, this, there are many sides to that story, but uh, I thought, well, this is this is probably a pretty pretty good book. And through and I spent ages of time with her, and she really opened up. But I also uh, went to the prison where where Mark Putnam was, and I talked to him in prison for a couple of days. And then, of course, I being a reporter, I went to. Uh, <clears throat> Eastern Kentucky, where this event, these events occurred, and spent time there. And the, Diane, the interesting thing about this particular uh, book was that everybody talked to me. And normally, people—it's a hard time getting people to talk. But the the prosecutor talked, the cops talked, the FBI talked off the record, and then later on the record, uh, the bank robber talked, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 dead woman's uh, husband talked uh, so it was an amazing uh, reporting adventure you probably wish that every assignment you ever had in your life was that easy it fell into your yeah. lap it sounds like that's gold to a reporter yeah. or a journalist yeah yeah um to set the the stage for people that don't know of this murder and yes listeners you heard us correctly this was an fbi agent that was he was a young man when he was he got his first assignment it was um he was 27 years old and he and his wife kathy they had lived in connecticut and they took this assignment in appalachia 
in eastern Kentucky, in Pike, I think it was called Pikeville, Kentucky, in Pike County. Am I right on that? That's correct, yep. He ultimately murdered an informant who turned out to be his, I don't want to use the word lover, but he had a sexual relationship. And as far as the decedent, the poor girl that was murdered, was concerned, it was a love affair. But I don't, from what this book conveyed, I don't think he was in love with her. I think it was an out of control situation where he had sexual relations with her, but it, it spiraled out of control. And then he was in over his head and it ended up badly for both of them. Uh, I think that's exactly correct, Diane. Um, and I think at the core of this of this situation that he got himself into is the idea, and the FBI pounds on this to the to this day, that you don't get involved with informants. Um, and he did. And he was desperate to prove himself in this godforsaken uh, outpost in in uh, Pikeville, Kentucky, which is really the coal mine areas of of eastern Kentucky. And the uh, the young woman who he met and who became his informant was from farther east, still almost on the West Virginia border. Uh, she was from a coal a coal mine town, and she you know she was a, a coal miner's daughter. And her motive was she was just desperate to get to change her environment. So as you said, it just it spun out of control, and it yeah. shouldn't have. And you know everybody knows that now, but. Uh, you know, the, this is the first FBI agent who was uh, convicted of murder, of, 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 of homicide. And afterwards, the FBI looked at this and, and they were like, we really need to need to crack down on, on uh, making sure agents understand about informants and understand, you know, basic cop work about do not get too close to it, your informant. But in this case, he was desperate to... Uh, to crack crimes, uh, and it was his, it was his assignment to do that. And he really, he was a real career guy, really gung ho, a nice guy, by the way. Uh, and she was the ticket to a, a you know, to a better, uh, a, a better record in his career. So everybody sort of uh, got swamped by circumstances. She was uh, a coal miner's daughter, as I said. <clears throat> she was a, a sassy, pretty sassy. Uh, girl who um she was known she was just known around around town as uh you know having a mouth and uh uh when she met him she she figured that well he was first of all the fbi was paying agents money uh paying or informants money and um, he was a, a meal ticket but then they got more and more involved and she really did she not only saw him as her his uh her ticket out of town. She saw him as I think he was the only guy that ever treated her with respect, you know, until he killed her, of course. Yeah. Um, so it was it was just a tragedy how it played out. Well, if you wouldn't mind, I jotted yeah. down a few after I read the book, I jotted down a few things and you can tell me if I'm accurate or not. Her name was Susan Smith. She yep. was divorced and had two children, but still lived with her drug dealing ex-con husband, Kevin. And she did drugs and he would ply her with drugs. And I think that um, there was, it sounded to me like she got well a better welfare check because they were divorced. So they still lived together, but you know, she, and I guess she also was getting, she doubled up. She went to the, I, I think the next state and got a check there too. So she was getting two welfare checks. 
She was a seventh grade dropout. Mm. She what her dad was a coal miner. He was a heavy drinker. At times she prostituted herself. She had a big mouth, a reputation for stretching the truth, unreliable, very, mm. very pretty, a real pistol. And she regularly got beat by her drug-dealing ex-husband, and then he would be remorseful and they'd make up. Do I have that kind of... You have it exactly. Hmm. Now, that to me sounds so bleak. (laughs) It is bleak. Coupled with Appalachia, I've never been to Appalachia. I'm sure it's gorgeous, but it just doesn't sound like there's a lot lot of opportunity. And human nature being what it is, he shows up, he's a crackerjack, he's young, he's you know, zealously wants to do the right thing. And she latched onto him and, as you said, saw her way to possibly having a better life. Yep. Uh, The interesting thing, I'm sorry, Jordan. uh, A quick question, uh, just so we can set the stage too. The FBI in that particular case, uh, what kind of crimes was he there to sort of investigate? Because I've watched watched Justified and Ozark, so I have an idea. (laughs) Well, then you know it's... uh, Yeah. You know, this was in uh, the late 80s. So in this part of Appalachia, uh, banks banks were really small and local. So there were a lot of bank robberies, mm-hmm. a lot of bank robberies. And drugs, of course, drug deals and, and uh, interstate uh, uh, commerce involving trucks, etc. But primarily it's drugs and, uh, and, and, uh, and bank robberies, both of which are, okay. are uh, you know, are federal aegis. Right. So no, and that's what that's what Susan Smith uh, gave him entree into was was the bank robber part of it. <clears throat> you know, as I was reading the book and, you know, it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, as they say. But as I'm reading it, all these red flags and I'm saying, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Um, the informant, Susan, started to regularly phone the home of. Mark Putnam, the agent, and speak to his wife about all kinds of personal stuff. And she mentioned that her husband used to run at night jogging. So Mm -hmm. the informant, Susan, starts to run. She finds out he likes to read. She starts showing up to his office clutching a book. Um, She was hanging around the local courthouse, always looking for Mark. One time, I guess she exposed her breast to the, I don't know. And she was always saying, Mark and I are in love. He's going to leave his wife, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, it was kind of sad when you, but there were so many egregious lines. Like, I think also another comedy of a reason, like it was a comedy of errors was Mark was in that. He had no supervision. He was, it was his first assignment. He had, they had one other agent that came. His name was Ron Poole. Mm-hmm. Could they have picked a worse person to go there? Like, yeah, Ron Paul was uh, was, was uh, a sad sack at the end of his uh, at the end of his ropes. But Ron Paul also had an eye for Susan Smith. He, he, uh, Correct. And you know he got involved with. She didn't like him, but he got involved with her. And he he was sort of the Iago as the mm-hmm. story played out because he's the one that that persuaded Susan to really force Mark into a. A confrontation over the fact that Susan was pregnant. This, this is at the end of the at the yes. end of the, his, yes. his time in Pikeville. Well, according to what I read, the FBI agents, I think in Lexington, Kentucky, the supervisor wanted to be rid of Ron Poole and stuck him out to pasture in this in this place where Mark Putnam was. So there's only two of them in the office, and it wasn't yeah. a good thing. 
Nope. No, it wasn't a good thing. Nope. So, and, and, and Mark, uh, you know, who's, who's a, a smart, uh, resourceful guy, and he was, a good, in that sense, a good cop, knew that he had to, um, he had to get on the job training, so to speak. So he started working with local cops and, and uh, state troopers who were uh, dispatched to that area, which is unusual. One of the big raps on the FBI, as I'm sure you know, is that they're sort of standoffish. The local cops uh, used to think of them as, uh, well, the, the, the feds are here. They're going to take over everything. But Mark didn't do that. Mark, Mark found a, a guy in, in Susan Smith's hometown called uh, Bertie Hatfield. And Bertie was a deputy sheriff uh, for the county. And Bertie sort of showed Mark the ropes about how to drive on those treacherous mountain roads, et cetera. And Bertie is the one who introduced Mark to Susan Smith, who came from the same town that Bertie came from. And I might add that in this story, you hear a lot of names, Hatfield, McCoy, because this is the area where the Hatfield-McCoy feud played out at the turn of the last century. So there are lots and lots of people with wow. those names. I, I have a question for you, Joe. Um, I know that uh, Diane read the book and has summarized many of the key elements, and one of them is, of course, the the tryst. He'll use that term, yeah. the romantic, sexual romantic part of it. And according to the notes here, um, this took place over a short period of time in a very uh, limited space, meaning a car. Is that right? According to Mark. Yes. And we only have Mark. I mean, Susan is dead. Right. Susan had Susan had tales to tell. Uh, there's dispute over how how, uh, uh, how how serious this relationship was. I tend to I tend to uh, believe Mark because he had no reason to lie about that. Right. Um, she was you know she was shooting her mouth off all around town. I think it was basically uh, you know in the back of the back of a car, which you know I, I it's just it's just sort of. Uh, Sad. You know, the whole thing was sad. And I think yeah, the wife, Kathy got the short end of the stick in every way. And even after he confessed and went to federal prison, she still stood by his side. She moved up by the prison with her two children for a mm. while. And then she realized it was too much. So she went back to Connecticut for her parents to help her. It was just sad all the way through. And she yeah. really tried to help Susan Smith, you know, get on she her did. feet and and and. The whole thing was just botched from beginning to end. It was a disaster. Well, you see that, you know, and you particularly, Diane, see that as a woman. And I was very interested in the female point of view in this book because it wasn't just about Mark Putnam. It was it was about his wife and it was about Susan Smith and their relationship fascinated me. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, that fascinated also uh, the people who put the movie together and especially Amelia Clark, who starred in the movie as as Susan Smith. Amelia was fascinated by that aspect of, of the character she played. You know, one thing that I had no idea, and I learned from reading your book, what deep pockets the FBI had at the time. I have no idea their status today, but Susan Smith, the informant, was compensated handsomely. And I mean, she didn't have a plug nickel, it sounds like. And he was handing her $4,000, $5,000. That would be like a million dollars to someone that didn't come from any means. And, you know, they, there was an endless supply of money. But in 
by the same token, inappropriately, Susan would try to give Mark gifts, and that yeah. is not correct either. So yeah, I think you see that for what it was, how desperate that that uh, that situation was. Uh, he turned he turned out he wouldn't take the gifts. Correct. But, he did the, the right thing on every yeah, step there. Of the way. You know, yes. Yeah. He what? he would immediately call his supervisor in Lexington and they would tell him how to proceed. But she this Susan Smith, by virtue of the fact she was an informant, she really catapulted him to, you know, have a, a he really he was a mover and shaker going right up, you know, getting credibility in the FBI. Yep. She was winning because she got all this money. So they really helped each other. Yeah, that's sort yeah. of what what happens in cases like that with a with a source, right? I mean, it's it's a two way street. Yep, that's uh, I, exactly what it was. Joe, I have another question, uh, and you, I'm sure you're going to get to this anyway. But uh, lead us up to the murder itself and the the climax, if you will, the the violence that likely occurred, and you know what precipitated that. After Kathy. Putnam, Mark's wife, was very much involved in this. She had no idea that her husband was having an affair with Susan Smith, uh, and you know, which was kind of stupid of her. And she told she told me as as much. But Kathy knew that if you if you got if an FBI agent got involved in serious uh, uh, criminal threats, that they would be transferred out of town. And that was Kathy's goal was to get them. She hated Pikeville, was to get them out of town. So Kathy intervened a lot in, in a basically an unsupervised office. Um, Finally, they got out of there and they went to Miami, but Mark had to go back to Pikeville County for tying up loose ends. I think it was the chop shop case he was working on still. Right. But he went back once and he never saw um, Susan. He didn't want to see her. And he got away with it once, but then when he went back again, that FBI agent Poole was telling Susan everything, where he was staying. Susan was like a a wide-eyed loon at that point. And she went to his hotel room and she was banging on the door and he was afraid she was going to make a scene. And that's when he put her in the rent-a-car he had and drove out to a clearing, a remote area outside of town. And that's where... The final showdown took place. Mm-hmm. Well, you should have written that book. You, uh, you seem to have, you seem to have all the all the ingredients to lead <laughs> well, up. Well, I just read it. She's also okay. a court reporter, so she she <laughs> ah, takes of course, copious yeah. notes. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Just think of human nature being what it is. Yeah, he's got all this stress. He's an FBI agent. He knows he never should have got involved with her. She claims that she's pregnant. But, you know, that FBI agent pool, he mm-hmm. took like a a document that showed that she was pregnant from like the doctor and gave it to him in the office and said, yeah. look, you better really speak to her. She she's having your baby. Yeah. And I think what set her into orbit is Mark said to her. If you're really having this baby, I'm going to take it. It can't grow up here with you. You're not a good mother, and and we'll raise the baby myself. She said, no, you're going to leave your wife. You're going to marry me. I'm going to go to the Miami office. I'm going to tell them the whole thing, that you've been having sex with an informant. And it it went – they had a heck of a fight. On the mountaintop. Yeah, yeah, she got physical first, slapped him. She went crazy on him. She jumped on him. Don't forget, according to him. 
Uh, but I, I kind of believe his account. You know, I buy no, his account. Neither of them were were, you know, it wasn't exemplary behavior. But you know, human nature. She was insanely mad and crazy, mm -hmm. and he was beside himself. Right. And in the, I guess he went to punch her, and he missed, and he hit the windshield. That's how the windshield shattered, and. He ended up, I think she died by suffocation. He strangled her. And he, according to the book, he didn't realize she was dead. He said, should I drive you home now or something? And she was yeah. slumped in the chair. I mean, the front seat, I don't know. Well, Diane, as you, as you know, this is, there were two people in that car and it was on a, a remote mountain road. And the only account I have is Mark Putnam's account. But I did take him over and over and over it and it never changed. And he was still, I mean, this was, you know, a year later. Uh, he was still extremely distraught about, about what he had done. Uh, I mean, he never, tried, he never tried to give me an excuse about what had happened. He, he strangled her. Uh, he, he saw to his horror. Now, this is his account. He saw to his horror that she was dead there on a remote mountain road. He uh, took the body out of the car. He stripped it. And he dumped her down a mountain, down a ravine, in a an area that was a, a, a used by a by a strip mining company. And he thought he didn't try to hide the body, but it, you know it was about forty feet down a ravine. And uh, he thought, well, you know, they're going to find that body, but they didn't until until a year later. You know, can I just speak to that? What you just said? Yeah. You wrote the book. You were there. I wasn't, but I just read it. And you know what? To refresh your memory, that is all correct. But when he killed her and he pulled her out of the vehicle, he put her in the trunk, didn't know That's what to right. do with her for 24 hours, went to work the next day in Lexington at the FBI office, and she was outside in the parking lot in the trunk. Can you yeah. imagine? Hmm. And That's then a two-hour two drive from P Pikeville to uh, Lexington, too. So he had mm. the body in the trunk of his car for an entire day. Weird. I can't even imagine the, the angst he felt. And, yeah. and he was riddled with guilt for a complete year. And you know what? The one that had the bee in her bonnet was the Susan's sister, Shelby Ward. She kept uh -huh. saying, hey, something's up with this. Yeah. You know, we need to investigate. And she was like a, she was relentless. And she, Shelby, Shelby never met Mark Putnam. No. Uh, but she'd heard all the stories from her sister. She and her sister were not close. But um, the sister sometimes slept on Shelby's couch, et cetera. Uh, Shelby was the one who um, first reported Susan missing. And it, was, it wasn't a really big deal then because Susan had in the, in the past taken off on, uh, on, on drug deals and you know, other adventures and uh, come back after a few weeks. And that was a part, a kind of, a part of the world where there's all, Susan had two kids where there's always somebody who will look after your kids. So Susan, it wasn't like Susan abandoned her kids. She, uh, the kids were being looked after by, you know, a friend or a neighbor. Uh, it, it, took, it took Shelby a while to, to get the, the attention of, of the local cops uh, that, that this girl was missing and something had happened. And eventually Shelby kept pounding it. She just would not give up, kept pounding and pounding on it. And finally, the uh, local cops and the state police, there was a state police barracks nearby, 
approached the FBI and said, look, we, we know this guy is, is not, is to, so to speak, above suspicion, but you got to get him, you got you to ask him some questions. And, and the FBI initially want to know parts of that because that, how could you even think that a, an agent would be involved in, in what they now regarded as a missing persons case? But as time went on, uh, and we're now almost a year after after the murder, uh, they did question Mark in in uh, Miami, uh, and they had him take a lie detector test, which of course he he uh, he failed spectacularly. And he then went to his wife, and this was an interesting part of the story to me, because the wife doesn't know anything. The wife knows that, that uh, Susan is missing, but that's it. Right. Uh, the wife has no idea, and uh, the, at a, uh, they, uh, the wife and he go to a, a bar and have a, have a drink after he gets back from the, the lie detector test. And Kathy says to him, did you have an affair with her? And he says, yes. And Kathy's flabbergasted, but then she says, almost jokingly, did you kill her? And Mark says, I did. And at that point, Kathy hauled off and, and walloped him. And knocked him out of his chair, <laughs> but at that point, her life her life went south quickly. Coming up, more of the All Rise podcast after this message. When you or a loved one needs a criminal defense attorney, go right to the very best. Call the offices of Elliot Levine Esquire. Elliot Levine has been assisting clients in the greater Boston area since 1980 with offices in Cambridge and Quincy. He has successfully tried many life felony cases throughout Massachusetts and handles cases at the superior, district, and appellate court levels. Attorney Elliot Levine always puts his clients first, taking the time to explain the issues and options in plain English, and he makes sure his clients feel comfortable with his advocacy every step of the way as their case progresses. Tip the scale in your favor. Call criminal defense attorney Elliot Levine, 617-669-2254. Again, that's 617-669-2254. Or you can email him, elliotlevine at gmail.com. That's E-L-L-I-O-T-R-L-E-V-I-N-E at gmail.com. Elliot Levine, for the defense. And now back to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. You know, one thing that struck me, just, this is just a little detail, but it struck me. When he pushed her body down the ravine, like when he disposed of her, he came up to the street level, like where the, his vehicle was, I guess. And there was a woman yep. on, a, on a horse, and she just looked at him. And he said yep. something like nature, like he had gone to the bathroom. And she just yep. didn't say a word and galloped off on the horse. And he was, like, freaked out. Yeah, he was like, that was close. Uh there was a riding stable, oh, I think maybe 10 miles away, and that, that woman just happened to be going by. Nothing ever came of that. Uh, you know, uh, I, we never even knew who she was. Uh, that body was down there, and, you know, as I said, it was a strip mine, and not long after he, after he disposed of the body, the strip mine company pushed a lot of dirt over that ravine. They were, they were, they were reworking the land. And and the body was was further concealed. It was it wasn't buried, but it was not visible. They had to really know where it was. So that's that accounts for why the body was there for almost a year until As, he fessed up. If he had never confessed, I don't think they ever would have found the body. Do you? I mean, chances. That's, no, that's what the the prosecutor told me. He said, "Look, the prosecutor is an old country uh, lawyer. 
named John Paul Runyon, great, a great uh, guy. Uh, and he said, look, I got, I don't have a case here. Uh, I, I don't have a body. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know that we can, we can successfully charge this guy, right. uh, but we're going to scare him. And they did. And, uh, uh, Kathy insisted that they, they have a really good criminal lawyer. And then there were about a week's worth of negotiations between Miami and Pikeville, Kentucky with John Paul Runyon, the prosecutor on that end. And they worked out a deal where Mark would uh, plead guilty to first degree manslaughter if he told them where the body was. Hmm. Uh, and at that point, he would come back to uh, Kentucky and plead. And that's what happened. He, uh, on the phone one night, he uh, walked the, uh, the cops through the uh, through the area and uh, and they, they they found the body. But but Susan's sister Shelby Wood wasn't having it. She didn't think it was um, you know a big enough sentence, and she wouldn't listen. That the prosecutor said, "This is the best I can do." Yeah. When it was all said and done, there was no trial. But the day he was, I guess, being um, sentenced, I don't know if it was the if he confess if he um, pled guilty the day of the sentencing. I'm not sure, but yeah, he did. Yeah. The sister entered the courthouse with a loaded firearm in her pocketbook. <laughs> now, I'm not sure. They confiscated it. I'm not yeah. sure. She claims she just forgot it was in there. Who knows what she would, if she was even going to do anything with it? Or what? Or was it innocent? Was it just, you know? No, I don't think so. It's just, it's an area, you know, you know that, that kind of area where a lot of people are, are carrying weapons. It's, it's sort right. of like at the airport. There's so many people. Uh, get busted for having a, a weapon in their bag, and they say, oh, "I don't even didn't even know I had it." Uh, that was sort of Shelby's. I don't think she had any intention of. Uh, yeah. You know what? I, from reading it, I don't think so either. I think uh -huh. she just forgot it was in her yeah. handbag, and that it was just unfortunate. That's the day that she walked into the courthouse like that. <laughs> right, Joe. But, I think she um, always had it. She got charged, and then they dropped the charges. Yeah, they dropped yeah. the charge. Yeah. But um, this, you know, her body was. Buried, and then they exhumed the body again for some reason. Oh, Shelby never... kept insisting on uh, a, a further autopsy. Shelby would not give up on this. So they had to uh, exhume the body and do another autopsy. And, uh, you know, it's, as you know, it's just, it's really difficult to, to find out anything, particularly since they, they had, they had the account of what happened. There was not much to, uh, not many questions left to answer. You told me you met a lot of these people and spoke with them openly. I, I can't remember. Did you speak to Shelby Ward, the sister? And what was her? How was she towards you? Shelby was hostile. She was the only one. Um, she wouldn't speak to me initially. Um, but then I went back after the movie was made. This is now decades later. And she did invite me into her house, but she still didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't talk. But I knew that Shelby didn't know anything. And, of course, she talked so much back when this all occurred that there was nothing Shelby could really add. Uh, but she, you know, she was, she was courteous. This is an area where people are just courteous. And she was courteous when I, when I uh, went back after the movie was made, I, I did talk to uh, Susan Smith's husband, a near do well named Ken, uh, uh, Kenneth Smith. Was it Kevin? And I think it was Kevin. Kenneth. Oh, was it Kenneth? Okay. Yeah, I, I tracked him down in the, in the hills in his at his trailer and he uh <laughs> his concern when he talked to me was 
he said, I'm much better looking than Mark, aren't I? And I thought, what an odd thing to be to say, because <laughs> your wife is dead or your ex-wife mm. is dead. But that was his concern. And he was actually a better looking guy than Mark. He was an extremely handsome hillbilly. <laughs> Joe, it, this is a yeah. Shakespearean tragedy in so many ways. Yeah. And, and Diane reported to me, and I'm just going to have you report to the audience, about some of the players beyond the victim, uh, the original murder victim, so many of them are gone. I mean, gone quickly, yeah. including Kathy. Do you want to summarize what happened to these people? Uh, Kathy, who I stayed in touch with uh, throughout. I mean, I stayed in touch with her for a decade. Uh, she never gave up on Mark. She she was uh, loyal and faithful. Uh, what I didn't know was Kathy was uh, had started drinking heavily. And in 1998, Kathy's mother called me and said that Kathy had died of mm. a heart attack. And subsequently, it was um, said that she died of, a, you know, a heart attack that, that was associated with a, with excessive drinking. Oh. Uh, tragic, you know, tragic, because Kathy, Kathy was a, a really interesting woman uh, who just got caught up in this uh, innocently. She, uh, she, she just, I mean, she... She was the one who pushed Mark. She was extremely ambitious for him, but she didn't deserve any any of what she got. The poor woman. You know, in the beginning, when he he was, I guess his whole life he had this idea that he wanted to be an FBI agent, and I yeah. guess he was initially rejected. And she took it into her own hands, and she went to the FBI and said, "Hey, listen, you know, he's got this. This is what he wants to do. He's fit." Yeah. And, you know, oddly enough, I lived in a house that one of the kids that was in, the, I call him a kid, he was in high school. He wanted to be an FBI agent. And I mean, when I look at him, you know, he graduated, I think, second in his class in high school. He had an MBA. He had a law degree. He had so many extracurricular. He was so he was textbook, the perfect on paper kid. Yep. And they, he tried for years and they kept rejecting him. There was never a reason why. And I said, if he didn't get into the FBI, what are they looking for? So it must be so hard to get accepted. So he must have been a real crackerjack. He must well, he was definitely that. But he uh, was also, his degree was in accounting. And the FBI, as, as we all remember, I'm sure, was very serious about numbers, and they really wanted to uh, be able to report. We we have X number of cases, we have X number of convictions, X number of arrests, and his his accounting ability uh, made a lot of uh, opened a lot of doors for him. But he was also a good cop. He was definitely a, a good cop. And if he hadn't gotten so messed up in this situation, I'm sure he would have risen in the ranks of the FBI. Mm. And where is he now? Joe. Uh, he got out of prison in 2001, I think. He had a 16-year sentence, which he served 10 years of, and he's now living in, in Florida where he's, a, I think he's a personal trainer. At the point at which the movie was being made, and as I was reworking the book for a, a, a new edition, uh, he didn't want to talk about anything. He was, he was done with it all. Mm. And, you know, who can blame him? Was he remorseful when you'd go to the prison? Yes. Crying. Did you like him, like as a from per, like as a human? Did you was he nice? I think mean, what was he like? A nice guy. Uh, that's a tough one, Diane, because as time went by, I, I I never stopped thinking about this, and I kept thinking in the book. And I, you know, the book is based on everything I could find out, 
And I had no insight into Susan Smith, except what I could, you know, she, her being dead, what I could ascertain from friends and, and people. And I thought, was I too easy on Mark? But I don't think I was. I think I just gave it as it, as it played out. But I was, I was sympathetic to him in prison, yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah. if you're a, a cop or a fed and you're in prison, that puts a little extra pressure, a lot of extra pressure on you as a convict, right? I wonder yeah. if he got hassled in there because of what he was. Well, he got the deal was federal prison. State prison would have been very bad. Uh, so he, caught, he got a good deal, I mean, for uh, considering the situation in Pikeville. There was, of course, tremendous commotion over the fact that they said he got off easy. But as the prosecutor told me, he had no choice. He, that was the only deal he could get, and uh, he had to live with it. And it, it was a tremendous amount of, I think to this day, there are people still, you know, thinking that this was a cover-up and mm-hmm. who knows what. It's an area where people gossip a lot. I remember reading in the book that it's so remote, it's like 100 miles from the nearest interstate. It was then. Uh, yeah, it really was remote. It's it's, it's more accessible now, but it's, these towns in, in that part of Appalachia are, you know, they're they're in mountain areas, they're coal mines, uh, and they really are remote. So you've got people who have lived there, they're in, a, in an environment where they have lived and their families have lived uh, since the uh, late uh, 1800s, uh, you know, as, as uh, lumbering and, and coal came in. So that most of them, have, a lot of them have just been there. There's not a lot of uh, cosmopolitanism, as you might say. You know what fascinated me? And you did speak to this. I think her, if I already said this, I'm repeating myself, but her, her mother was a descendant of like the Hatfields and her father was a descendant of the McCoys. I think that yeah. is like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I don't know why. It just cool. struck me. <laughs> Sounds hot to me. <laughs> you know how they say it's a hauler? What's a hauler? It's a, a sort of a, a, a little valley in the mountain uh, area. Uh, it, it, it's not, I mean, Valley would be too grand a, a word for it. It's a it's a a, 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 a valley with houses in it, uh, usually desperately poor, almost always junk all around. Um, mm. You know, but people, you know, I'm thinking of Dolly Parton, etc., who grew up that way. Are, there's a certain amount of pride in in coming out of that area because uh, people are uh, they're 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 resourceful. They're they're usually brave. They're uh, uh, they care about each other. They have they have a a sense of where where they come from that uh, that they never lose. Um, you know, and that that was true throughout this process. Not only when I wrote the book, when I researched the book, but when I came back when the movie was being made, and it was still true. People talked to me. You know, I there were actually I thought I'm going to knock on some doors, and there's some people who didn't maybe turn out so well in the book. And I thought, you know, I'm going to knock on this door, but they might shoot me. <sighs> but they were always, they were always cordial. And I thought, man, this is, were uh, you alone? Yes. So you must have felt unsafe at times. No, I'm stupid. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we love you, Joe. <laughs> uh, I, I have one real final comment from me because I, I don't want I want Diane to get the uh, the lion's share of her questions in, but. I grew up in the 60s, uh, and I watched the FBI on television with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., and we had this image that Hoover wanted us to have of, you know, clean-cut, perfectly coiffed guys, most almost all guys. And you, and you read a book like yours and see a film or see 
modern-day FBI agents, and so many of them, unless they're undercover, don't look like that image <laughs> that Hoover had for the FBI. It's just odd to me. that Mark did, Jordan, though. But uh, Poole was, didn't, did he? He was, he was well-dressed. He was yeah. well-coiffed. Uh, uh, he knew how to behave. So he really was in that image in the late 80s. And, and the Hoover influence was still very much in the FBI. But, but Poole was the guy with, that Diane brought Poole up. Poole was a slob. <laughs> and he died young, too, right? He died uh, at yeah, a, at a young did, age. Yeah, he did, yeah. I just have a couple more questions. Yeah. You have to ask, this is eating me. This book was so well done, and it's so full of information, detailed, how many hours do you hazard that you spent collecting information for this book? It must have been unbelievable. Hmm. Well, yeah, you know, I'm a reporter. I've been a reporter all my adult life. So I knew, I knew how to do it, basically. And I, I wrote the book in a year. Um, but there was a lot of time. I spent a lot of time in eastern Kentucky um, talking to people. And uh, as I said earlier, uh, people were most for the most part were very cooperative with me. And the FBI, I, I got a hold of all the FBI files. Uh, there are three hundred twos, etc. And there's often a lot of information in those. Uh, you have to be careful with them. But uh, uh, so I, you know, it, it was a, it was a good reporting experience. But it took a while. Yeah. I can't even imagine it. It's so impressive. But the last thing I wanted to ask you was, how did Hollywood come knocking on your door? What happened? A producer named Colleen Camp, who's an actress, but uh, later became a producer, loved the book and had basically been its champion for years and years. And, uh, you know, the book was the, the, the book was in development, as they call it, in Hollywood. And I always thought, well, you know, that's you know, that's very nice to hear that. And uh, um Nothing will come of it. But, that, but then one day I got a, a phone call from Colleen and she says, we're ready to go. And I, I said, with what? And she said, with the movie. And she said, we've, uh, we've got Amelia Clark and we've got Philip Noyce as director. And I thought like, whoa, these are serious people. Amelia was then in the, at the height of her Game of Thrones fame. And uh, right. yeah, yeah. So it, it actually happened. And I, and they gave me full access to the movie set. Uh, they they shot it in Harlan, Kentucky, which is not all that different from Pikeville, and uh, they were just gracious with me, and they I had full full reign at, uh, on location, so it was interesting. And uh, you know, I'll tell you just quickly that Amelia, who I I didn't know much about her, had been in character. She's a Brit, as as you probably know. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, she had been in character for months uh, uh, as Susan Smith, and when I met her. I thought she'd grown up in Eastern. I mean, you could you could have believed she grew up in Eastern Kentucky because she had the accent right. She had the she had the attitude right. <laughs> I mean, she and I told her I said, Amelia, you you're bringing this girl back to life, hmm. and I think that's a real achievement. Well, and then I she said thank you in Brit in British accent. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Joe, did you have the chair with your name on the back? I hope <laughs> no, but. Ah. Noise let me sit in his chair. Oh, that's good. <laughs> if people want to see this movie, I forget what I did. I just spoke into my remote and I said above suspicion. It came up and I don't know, it was like $5 or $6. I don't know what Ooh. it was. But if people want to see it, I guess they can do that. Can you yeah. streamline it any more than that? It's on Amazon Prime, I think. It, it opened in theaters, but it got clobbered by the pandemic. And mm. uh, it just it just sort of disappeared. 
out of the theaters. Uh, yeah, Amazon Prime has it for streaming. Was yeah, it? It's a good. I like it. It's a good movie. Was it released in 2021? Yes. Well, first it was released in 2020. The, the producers were squabbling, and in 2020, one of the producers got this. This really a mess. Got the movie released all over uh, Europe and in Bulgaria and and uh, Israel, and the U.S. release was 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 still in abeyance. So it's been released. In, in weird ways, but it's available now. And well, Amelia is terrific in that, I would, would say. She's marvelous. Well, the name of the book, again, and the name of the movie is Above Suspicion. The author is Joe Sharkey, S-H-A-R-K-E-Y, if you want to get the book. And that's a wrap, I guess, as they say in showbiz. <laughs> Great okay, having you back, Joe. Always a pleasure. Great Jordan, having you back. You, you bet. Thank you, Diane. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.